And the word of God says, Whom they set before the apostles, and when they had prayed, they laid their hands on them. And the word of God increased, and the number of the disciples multiplied in Jerusalem greatly. And a great number of the priests were obedient to the faith. And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and miracles among the people. Then there arose certain of the synagogue, which is called the synagogue of the Libertines and Cyrenians and Alexandrians, and of them of Cilicia and of Asia, disputing with Stephen. And they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spake. Then they suburned men, which said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes and came upon him and caught him and brought him to the council and set up false witnesses, which said, This man ceased not to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth shall destroy this place and shall change the customs which Moses delivered us. And all that sat in the council, looking steadfastly on him, saw his face as it had been the face of an angel. Then said the high priest, Are these things so? And he said, Men, brethren, and fathers, hearken. The God of glory appeared unto our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he dwelt in Charan, and said unto him, Get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred, and come into the land which I shall show thee. Then came he out of the land of the Chaldeans, and dwelt in Quran, and there thence, and from thence, when his father was dead, he removed him into this land wherein ye now dwell. And he gave him none inheritance in it, no, not so much as to set his foot on. Yet he promised that he would give it to him for a possession, and to his seed after him, when as yet he had no child." And God spake on this wise, that his seed should sojourn in a strange land, and that they should bring them into bondage, and entreat them evil four hundred years. And the nation to whom they shall be in bondage will I judge, said God. And after that shall they come forth and serve me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision, and so Abraham begot Isaac, and circumcised him the eighth day. And Isaac begot Jacob, and Jacob begot the twelve patriarchs. And the patriarchs moved with envy, sold Joseph into Egypt, but God was with him, and delivered him out of all his afflictions, and gave him favor and wisdom in the sight of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he made him governor over Egypt and all his house. Now there came a dearth over all the land of Egypt and Canaan, and great affliction, and our fathers found no sustenance. But when Jacob heard that there was corn in Egypt, he sent out our fathers first. And the second time Joseph was made known to his brethren, and Joseph's kindred was made known unto Pharaoh. 
Then sent Joseph and called his father Jacob to him and all his kindred, threescore and fifteen souls. So Jacob went down into Egypt and died, he and our fathers, and were carried over into Shechem and laid in the sepulcher that Abraham bought for a sum of money of the sons of Amor, the father of Shechem. But when the time of the promise drew nigh, which God had sworn to Abraham, the people grew and multiplied in Egypt, till another king arose, which knew not Joseph. And the same dwelt subtly with our kindred, and evil entreated our fathers, so that they cast out their young children to the end they might not live. In which time Moses was born, and was exceeding fair, and nourished up in his father's house three months. And when he was cast out, Pharaoh's daughter took him in, took him up, and nourished him for her own son. And Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and was mighty in words and in deeds. And when he was full forty years old, it came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended him and avenged him that was oppressed and smote the Egyptian. For he supposed his brethren would have understood how that God by his hand would deliver them, but they understood not. And the next day he showed himself unto them as they strove and would have set them at one again, saying, Sirs, ye are not brethren. Or excuse me, sirs, ye are brethren, why do ye wrong one another? But he did that, but excuse me, but he that did his neighbor wrong thrust him away, saying, Who made thee a ruler and a judge over us? Wilt thou kill me as thou didst the Egyptian yesterday? Then fled Moses at this saying, and was a stranger in the land of Midian, where he begot two sons. And when forty years were expired, there appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai an angel of the Lord in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he wondered at the sight, and as he drew near to behold it, the voice of the Lord came upon him, saying, I am the God of thy fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. When Moses, then Moses trembled and durst not behold. Then said the Lord to him, Put off thy shoes from thy feet, for the place where thou standest is holy ground. I have seen, I have seen the affliction of my people which is in Egypt, and I have heard their groaning, and am come down to deliver them, and now come, I will send thee into Egypt. Then Moses whom, thou, whom they refused, saying, Who made thee a ruler and a judge? The same did God send to be a ruler and a deliverer by the hand of the angel which appeared to him in the bush. He brought them out. After that he had showed wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and in the Red Sea and in the wilderness forty years. This is that Moses which said unto the children of Israel, A prophet shall the Lord your God raise up unto you for your brethren, like unto me, him shall ye hear. This is he 
that was in the church in the wilderness with the angel which spake to him in the Mount Sinai and with our fathers who received the lively oracles to give unto us, to whom our fathers would, would not obey, but thrust him from them, and in their hearts turned back again into Egypt, saying unto Aaron, Make us gods to go before us. For as for this Moses, which brought us out of the land of Egypt, we want not what is become of him. And they made a calf in those days, and offered sacrifice unto the idol, and rejoiced in the works of their own hands. Then God turned, and gave them up to worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets, O ye house of Israel, have ye offered to me slain beasts and sacrifices by the space of forty years in the wilderness? Yea, ye took up the tabernacle of Moloch, and the star of your god Rimphan, figures which ye made to worship them. And I will carry you away beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tabernacle of witness in the wilderness, as he had appointed, speaking unto Moses, that he should make it according to the fashion that he had seen, which also our fathers that came after brought with brought in with Jesus into the possession of the Gentiles whom God drove out before the face of our fathers unto the days of David, who found their favor before God and desired to find a tabernacle for the God of Jacob. But Solomon built him an house. Howbeit the Most High dwelleth not in temples made with hands, as saith the prophet. Heaven is my throne, and earth is my footstool. What house will ye build me, saith the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Hath not my hand made all these things? Ye stiff-necked and uncircumcised in the heart and ears, ye do always resist the Holy Ghost, as your fathers did, so do ye. Which of the prophets have not your fathers persecuted? And they have slain them which showed before of the coming of the just one, of whom ye have been now the betrayers and murderers, who have received the law by the disposition of angels and have not kept it. When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart, and they gnashed on him with their teeth. But he, being full of the Holy Ghost, looked up steadfastly into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing on the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. Then they cried out with a loud voice, And stopped their ears, and ran upon him with one accord, and cast him out of the city, and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at a young man's feet, whose name was Saul. And they stoned Stephen, calling upon God, and saying, Lord Jesus, and they stoned Stephen, 
calling upon God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he kneeled down and cried with a loud voice, Lord, lay not this sin on their charge. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Please be seated. Father, I pray this morning that you, through your spirit, would provide words, words of truth that you have given in your scripture. Father, I pray for this group that's gathered together this morning. I pray that we too shall be witnesses to Jesus all our days. That we would see each day you give to us as an occasion for testimony. Speak, I pray. I pray that your spirit would teach us this morning from your word. In Jesus' name, amen. As we begin, I would like to read Acts chapter 1, verse 8, which I believe will set the context for the entire summer ahead of us, just as it set the context for last summer. Acts 1, verse 8. If you have a red letter edition, you see these are words of Jesus. Jesus says, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. The text that was just read this morning is a hinge text. It's a pivotal text in this particular book. Ministry in Jerusalem is about to transition into Judea and Samaria. And Acts 1 verse 8 serves as that big picture outline for the entire book, right? Last summer we started in Acts 1 and we made our way through Acts 6 verse 7. This summer the hope is to work through Acts chapter 12. The plan, should the Lord allow, is to pick up part three next summer. As we'll look at Acts 13 through 20, the missionary journeys of Paul. This man who in the text this morning is called Paul, who serves as a witness to the stoning of Stephen. And then part four, Lord willing, the following summer, we'll take the, uh, the journey of Paul to, to Rome and his trials and his house arrest. So part two of uh, four summers here, Lord willing, that will be in the book of Acts. Well, the disciples had been instructed at the end of Luke's gospel. Remember, Luke is also the one writing this narrative in the book of Acts as he's moved along by the Holy Spirit. And at the end of Luke's gospel, they are told to wait in Jerusalem for this power from on high, right? This power was about to come in the person of the promised Holy Spirit. And with this power received, Jesus is clear about the purpose for the remaining days. Here it is. 
You shall be witnesses to me. Witnesses. The word there, the root word. Martyr. Martyres. One who, one who bears witness to Christ by his death. One whose life and actions testify to the worth and effect of faith. We're going to see that in the life of Stephen here this morning. Jesus tells his disciples that they shall be witnesses to him. First in Jerusalem. Then in Judea and Samaria. And on to the end of the earth. The power which came from on high that day at Pentecost came with a purpose. That the followers of Jesus might be empowered to be effective witnesses for Jesus. No power, no effective witness. But with this power of the Holy Spirit operating in them, the followers of Jesus would be able to bring great glory to the Lord all their days, pointing those around them to Jesus, those in the surrounding areas in Judea and Samaria to Jesus, and ultimately permeating the world with the good news of Jesus. You see, the gospel of Jesus Christ, church, was never intended to remain in Jerusalem. It was intended to move. And guess what? The same is true today. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not just intended for you as an individual. But the gospel of Jesus Christ is intended to move forward. And his desire is that he would use you as his witness to move and advance the gospel forward. You see, the book of Acts shows witnesses in action, having received the power from on high, this church in motion for Jesus Christ. See, on a, on a few different occasions already, we need to understand contextually that the first five chapters of Acts, the, the empowered witnesses for Jesus, they found themselves in prison for preaching and teaching in the name of Jesus. You see, right now, in the context where we're at with Stephen. Jesus is getting them into trouble. Preaching and teaching in the name of Jesus is landing them in prison. And yet the power working in them continues to motivate them onward for the cause of Christ. After a beating in Acts chapter 5, remember that? Remember they got arrested the first time and and just kind of slapped on the wrist and they were let go. The second time they were arrested, then they were released and they're found out in the courtyard again. Then they're arrested again and then they're chastised and, and then they're beaten. But we read this at the end of chapter 5. They departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for the name. And so at the beginning of Acts 6, the church encounters one of its first snags. There's a growth among the disciples, praise the Lord, good news. But it leads to a neglect among certain widows. The Hellenist widows were being neglected in the daily distribution of food. And to meet the need, the apostles called the brethren to seek out seven men from among them. Men, there's a criteria. These men were to be men of good reputation. These men were to be men full of the Holy Spirit. Men full of wisdom. And so we see Stephen, 
a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, Acts chapter 6, verse 5. He is one of the seven. And this Stephen, who was selected for ministry, selected for service, initially to help provide for the Hellenist widows, the Lord, though, we see, has another role for him to play in the church and in the expansion of the gospel. And as I was considering that, I was wondering, too, How many of you, the Lord has not only called unto himself to be a part of his church, but it got me thinking about what's the Lord also have in store for you? You see, some of us, some of us see our role and our place in the church of Jesus Christ I'm just, a, I'm just a member, I'm just an attender, I'm just a... Ra- I, I just go. There's more to this than being a Sunday morning attender. Perhaps the Lord this morning is awakening you to something else He might have for you, something else He might want and desire for you to be doing to advance this gospel of Jesus Christ forward. You see, Stephen started out simply as one of seven helping out with a ministry problem. There was a problem. And he was appointed to help take care of this issue. But as we see in the text, the Lord had so much more in store for Stephen, didn't he? Let's not dismiss what the Lord may want to do in and through your life. Well, Acts 6 verse 7 provides the immediate context for the remainder of 6 and all, all the way through 7. It says the word of God spread. The number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. Now this sets the context for where things are headed. Verses 8 and 9 of Acts 6. They introduce us to the two main parties here initially involved. Acts 6 verse 8. Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. This is what Stephen is doing. He's doing this in the power. What power? The power granted to him by the Holy Spirit. Okay, let's be clear where the power is coming from. Verse 6, or verse 9 of chapter 6 then says, There arose some from the synagogue of the freedmen. Synagogue of the freedmen. Kind of an odd phrase. And there are several things here as we go through that would be perhaps some good discussion points at the, at the lunch table. But this synagogue of the freedmen stems back to uh, prisoners from Rome dating back to the days of, uh, of, of Pompeii, early first century B- B.C. There are groups of Cyrenians and Alexandrians and those from Cilicia and Asia. Perhaps that group from Cilicia was a group that Saul of Tarsus was a part of. They were disputing with Stephen. They were, the word there has a mind, debating. Some of you in here do that, right? You debate. This word dispute really has in mind a debate. They were debating. This first section of text in Acts 6, 8 through 15, I'd like us just to see the charge. What's the charge put forth here? The charge is blasphemy. That's what they're charging Stephen with. As you go through this, you can't help but see the pictures of Jesus. The similarities between 
what they did with Stephen and what they did with Jesus. And it makes good sense because Stephen is ultimately pointing them to Jesus. The one over whom they stumbled. But the blasphemy, this charge that they have against Stephen, it comes in four forms. And they're all weaved and connected together. But blasphemy against God. Blasphemy against Moses. Blasphemy against the law. Blasphemy against the temple. Okay, those are the four main Charges, if you will, put forward against Stephen. So Luke, now, as he's moved by the Spirit, he he doesn't give us all the particulars of this debate. The basis for such a debate seems to stem from the power working through Stephen. Acts 6, verse 8, what he's been doing among the people. And then we see the response in verse 9 from the parties described. The subject matter most likely had to do with and centered upon the person of Jesus Christ. Because you see, up to this point in time, they had been, the apostles, the disciples had been teaching and preaching in the name of Jesus. And the Sanhedrin, the council had been saying, no, stop it. Verse 10 is important in this part of the passage. It says, and they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. Amen. Amen, that's good news. I love to read that verse. They weren't able to resist. Keep keep this in mind as you read the remainder of Acts 6. The freedmen, the North African contingent, right, from Alexandria, right, and Cyrene, and the Asian contingent. It seems that Luke is speaking of three distinct synagogue representatives, if you will. Hey, They lost the debate. Can can we just put that forward? They lost the debate. Together, they couldn't stand up to the wisdom and the spirit present within Stephen. So in light of their inability to win the debate, they go to plan B. I want you to look at the steps they take to rid themselves of this man, Stephen. You see, much like what they did with Christ, it wasn't enough to win the argument. They found out they couldn't win the argument. So what then do we do? Let's just get rid of him. They secretly induced men to say, we've heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes. And they came upon him, seized him, that word has in mind, by force. Brought him to the council. They also set up false witnesses. Who said, this man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against this holy place in the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs which Moses delivered to us. You see, they're bringing up the name of Jesus, which leads me to believe that was the core of the subject matter in this debate. Jesus. And Stephen is standing on the side of Jesus Christ, the truth of Jesus Christ. And you have the synagogue folk over here who are standing in clear opposition to the truth of Jesus Christ. Church, is it any different today? This same debate we're speaking of in Acts 6 and 7, this same debate still goes on today, does it not? 
The question becomes, are you going to be standing over here on the side of the truth of Jesus Christ? Or are you going to stand over here in the camp of the synagogue folk? Or worse yet, are you going to try to straddle both? That's the question. The charges put forth here in these verses, charges that Luke himself deems false, right? We get the idea Luke is putting forth this in such a way. Luke, Luke sees these charges, they're, they're trumped up, they're false. They secretly induced men to say, in verse 13, after Stephen's forcefully brought before the council, the text says that they also set up false witnesses. What are the charges? One short, there are four. God, Moses, law, temple. And Stephen, beginning in Acts 7, verse 2, presents a narrative history of the Jewish people dating back to the time of Abraham. And weaved into the history are the four charges brought against him. See, in light of the charges brought to his attention, Stephen is given a platform to speak. Praise the Lord, he's given a platform to speak. He's given the opportunity to make a defense of sorts. But if you read Acts chapter 7, you'll notice that it's much more than a defense... Much more than explaining why he's not guilty of such trumped up charges. Stephen is going to show with great courage, with great boldness, that the very charges posted to his account are actually charges against the Jewish leaders themselves. You see, the evidence is manifested as Stephen presses the rewind button of Israel's history. The evidence Stephen submits is found in the history of Israel. History. What really happened in Israel's history? Stephen recounts this before the council. And time and time again, the picture is coming to light. The one making a defense is also confirming the truth of the gospel. And in doing so, indicting the Jewish leaders of blaspheming God, rejecting Moses, holding to a legalistic sense of the law, and seeing the temple as the sole place, the only place where God could show up. I want you to notice before Stephen speaks, look at verse 15. It says, And all who sat in the council, looking steadfastly at him, saw his face as the face of an angel. They saw his face as the face of an angel. You know, I was reminded there in Exodus chapter 34, verses 29 to 35. You remember Moses when he comes down from the mountain after his meeting with God, and he's got those two tablets of testimony with him. The text says Moses did not know that his skin, skin of his face, was shining. And it says that the people were afraid to come near him. Remember, he put the veil on, and then whenever he'd go to meet with God, he'd take the veil off to talk and speak with God. I bring this verse up for a reason. You see, no one here in the text in Acts 6 seems to be on Stephen's side. He's hastily... Brought into to the council. The charges are false. Witnesses have been primed for action. Stephen finds himself in the heat of persecution. Things are not looking all that great for Stephen. Now possible at this particular point in time. It's possible. And maybe you've thought this on an occasion. 
I got to thinking, you know what? Here's Stephen in the midst of the heat of the persecution. And perhaps he's thinking, or at least he could have thought. I'm not saying he thought this, but perhaps maybe we would be thinking this. Hey, I didn't sign up for this. I signed up to help some widows. Here he is right in the heat of it. Right in the middle of it. His face was like that of an angel. And you get the picture of Moses' shining face before the people. You get the idea that Stephen is not alone after all. Odds may be against him, you see, but when God is on your side, it doesn't matter the opposition against you. Romans 8.31 says, if God is for us, who can be against us? I'm also reminded of Luke's gospel, chapter 21. It's rich, and it's interesting that it's in Luke's gospel, the same one who's writing here in the book of Acts. Uh, if you look at Luke 21, just a few verses that I believe are, are, are pertinent to where we're at here in this text. Starting in verse 12, Jesus, said, Jesus speaking. But before all these things, he's talking about what's going to be happening down the road for the disciples. They will lay hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons. You will be brought before kings and rulers for my name's sake. But it will turn out for you as an occasion for testimony. An occasion for testimony. Therefore settle it in your hearts not to meditate beforehand on what you will answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom. Which all your adversaries will not be able to contradict or resist. Are we, do we see the words of Jesus coming to play here in Stephen's life? You will be betrayed even by parents and brothers, relatives and friends. And they will put some of you to death. They will put some of you to death. You'll be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head shall be lost. By your patience, possess your souls. By your patience, possess your souls. So after hearing the charges against Stephen, the high priest says, are these things so? Right there at the beginning of Acts 7. Are these things so? And so now, chapter 7, 1 through 53, this big, huge chunk of text. Please don't get lost in the length of the text. Some of you are going, oh, this is long. He's going to preach this. How's he going to preach all this? We're going to be here all day long. If that's your thought, I want to just try and blow that up for just a moment. Just, just lose that for just a moment. Okay? This is, one of the, this is the longest speech in the, in the book of Acts. For good reason. There's a good purpose. It's here. Listen to what it says. This is not just some... Some of you are thinking it, so I'm going to speak it. Some boring history account. This is profitable for your soul. So let's listen and let's be attentive to what it has to say. 1 through 53 is going to be the defense. We've had the charge, the defense. Stephen's going to be speaking. And he's going to be speaking, he's going to be reciting the truth of Israel's history. He's going to be reciting the truth of Israel's history. And I got to thinking, just from a practical standpoint, how important this text is. Because you see, Stephen didn't have, like, notes. He didn't have, you know, he, didn't, he hadn't spent a lot of time, you know, jotting an outline of what he wanted to share with the council. Stephen's thrown into the fire. 
and been thrown into the fire, this man full of faith, this man full of wisdom, this man full of power, full of the Holy Spirit. This man was given a mouth and given a wisdom to speak. And what he says is given to him by God Almighty. It's wonderful. You read this account. He knows the history of Israel. And it all weaves together this narrative. He's he's bringing to light not only the history of Israel, but at the same time showing to the council how they too have, this has been a pattern. And you too are a part of it. Wake up. So he's going to talk about Abraham, verses 2 through 8. He's going to go to Joseph the patriarchs, 9 through 16. He's going to speak, the bulk of this is on Moses, verses 17 through 43. Okay? Then he's going to transition. He'll speak about Joshua. He'll speak about David. He'll speak about Solomon in terms of the temple and transitioning the tabernacle into the temple. And, and then 51 through 53 is a rebuke. That's probably the part we, we're most familiar with. You stiff-necked, right? Remember as you read through this text that Stephen is addressing the charges that are brought forth. He's, the charges, he's speaking blasphemous words against God, against Moses, against the law, against the temple. If you remember those four, have handles on those four items. This is not a boring history to read. Because you see, as he's recounting the truth of Israel's history, he is also at the same time showing the council. The absurdity of holding to these very things that they're holding on to. He's pointing out. He's pointing out the truth in the midst of his history lesson. And he starts by just simply saying, brethren and fathers, listen. Very respectful. Brethren and fathers, listen. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he dwelt in Haran and said to him, get out of your country and from your relatives and come to a land that I will show you. Genesis chapter 12, right? End of Genesis 11. Just right out of the gate here. He's pointing out, keep in mind the four charges. This God, from the beginning, when we go all the way back to Abraham, this God showed himself to Abraham in Mesopotamia, not in Jerusalem. Called him. Ur of the Chaldeans. And they moved. And by the way, just as a side note, there are probably three or four, there may be a handful of issues that, that maybe need some, or could have some, some further discussion. Okay? There may be some apparent discrepancy. Let me assure you, there is no discrepancy in God's word. Okay? But this morning, for the purpose that we're gathered here, I'm not going to dive in to these, these three or four Arenas, okay? One of them has to do right here up front with God's call. Did God call in Mesopotamia or did God call in Haran? Did God call twice? Okay? I'm just putting that forward. When did they move from Haran to the promise? When did they move? That's another one. And we'll see in chapter, uh, uh, chapter 7, verse 16, uh, surrounding the, the death and the burial, right? Jacob and patriarchs. Where was he buried? That, that's another issue. That's up for some discussion Amongst folks. And I'm pointing these things out for you just to let you know perhaps that's something that, that you could look into further. I, I believe it's helpful to at least put it on the table and let you know that these are some things that, that are out there. But for our time this morning, we're going to keep moving through and look at the very things 
that Stephen is speaking of in relationship to the charges brought forth against him. So we see right here in these few verses, beginning with Abraham, we see the call of God on his life. We see the the emphasis in the speaking here of the child of promise. And I was reminded in Romans of, in Isaac, your seed shall be called. Right? Even while Abraham had no child, verse 5, chapter 7, says God promised to give the land to him for a possession and to his descendants after him. We see also in that same text that captivity is being foretold. Captivity, right? Abraham's descendants would be brought into bondage, into a foreign land where they would be oppressed for some 400 years. And we see also there that he's speaking in verse 8. God gave him the covenant of circumcision. That mark in his flesh. That this people belongs to God. Okay, so we see a few things here in the life of Abraham. If you look at the end of 8, you see that Abraham begot Isaac and circumcised him on the 8th day. And Isaac begot Jacob and Jacob begot the 12 patriarchs. The 12 patriarchs. Consider that. Think about that. Stephen is speaking about the patriarchs in the midst of the council. Oh, the council liked to hear about the patriarchs. Their ears are up. They're listening. And he moves on, talking about these patriarchs. You see, for a man who's being charged, speaking words against God, Stephen seems to be, up to this point, seems to be delivering an accurate account of what God orchestrated through the life of Abraham, through the life of Isaac, through the life of Jacob. Look at verses 9 and 10. And the patriarchs becoming envious. You see, the, patriarch, the patriarchs were, were the good guys. And he's speaking here. The patriarchs, becoming envious, sold Joseph into Egypt. But God was with him and delivered him out of all of his troubles... Gave him favor and wisdom in the presence of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And he made him governor over Egypt and all his house. You see, the patriarchs became envious and they sold Joseph into Egypt. Stephen, as he's reciting the history of Israel, puts forward men whom God raised up for his purposes. Men set aside by God to deliver his people. These men throughout the history of Israel are routinely rejected. And Stephen recounts the life of Joseph, in whom is a type of Jesus Christ himself. And we see in the account of Joseph, he reunites with his family for a time and reveals himself, right, to his brothers and extends compassion toward them, pointing them to what God was doing through all of this. Remember that? You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And I hear that part of, of Stephen's defense and his testimony. And I think of Peter's words on the day of Pentecost. Remember when he said, him, talking about Christ. Him being delivered by the what? Determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. You've taken by lawless hands and have crucified. Put to death. Whom God raised up, Peter spoke. Having loosed the pains of death because it was not possible that he should be held by it. That's Acts 2, 23 and 24. So beginning with his defense, with the life of, of Abraham and, and Isaac and Jacob and the patriarchs, Stephen testifies to the goodness of God. Think of all these things and all these ways that he speaks of God for just a moment. He speaks to the goodness of God. He speaks to the promises of God. He speaks to the sovereignty of God. He speaks to the righteousness of God because you see it was credited to 
Abraham's account, wasn't it? That righteousness. And he speaks to this steadfast love of God. Not quite the testimony of one blaspheming against God. He continues to testify in verses 17 through 43. Speaking of Moses and the law. Connects the two together. For good reason. Remember the charges that are before Stephen. Blasphemous words against God, against Moses, against the law, and against the temple. Verses 17 and 18. But when the time of the promise drew near, which God had sworn to Abraham, the people grew and multiplied in Egypt, still in Egypt, till another king arose who did not know Joseph. This takes us to the end of Genesis, the beginning of Exodus, right? Contextually. That's where Stephen's at as he's speaking. The king oppressed the people of Israel, and he dealt treacherously with them, calling for the murder of all baby boys in Egypt. Remember that? This was the context for the birth of Moses. Stephen says here that Moses was pleasing to God. He said, God God had his hand all over this little one. Preserved him greatly. For three months, you remember? For three months, Moses was preserved in his house. And then shortly afterward, he was preserved in a in a basket placed in that Nile River. But God's preservation for this little baby boy didn't end in the Nile. See, Pharaoh's daughter found this baby and took the baby in as her own, preserving his very life. But it gets even better. Upon discovering that this was a Hebrew Baby. Pharaoh's daughter gets approached by Miriam, Moses' older sister. And she offers to get a Hebrew woman to nurse this Hebrew baby boy. Pharaoh's daughter, by the grace of God, agrees. And God preserves this mother-son relationship. Even going so far as to pay mom a wage to take care of And nurture her own son. That's the beginning context of Moses. Acts 7.22, Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and deeds. You see, Moses' life, just in in brief, was broken up into three 40-year segments, right? The first 40 years grew up in in the household of the Egyptians, learning all the wisdom of the Egyptians. The second 40... Spent on the backside of the desert and wilderness in Midian. And then the last 40 years of his life, leading the Israelites in the direction of the promised land. Acts 7, 23 to 25 says that when he was 40, it came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel. You see, while being trained in Egyptian ways, Moses, even at age 40 still saw himself as one of the children of Israel. Seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended and avenged him who was oppressed and struck down the Egyptian. For he supposed that his... This is so important in the text. He supposed that his brethren would have understood that God would deliver them by his hand. But they did not understand. 
Stephen then recounts the exchange between the two Hebrews fighting the next day. Moses tries to reconcile the two and they respond, Who made you ruler and a judge over us? You want to kill me as you did the Egyptian yesterday? That was code for Moses to leave. So he left. He went into Midian. And it's here in Midian where God shows up again in his life. By way of a burning bush. Remember the story, right? Exodus 3. The voice of the Lord speaks to Moses out of the bush, revealing himself as the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. The Lord tells Moses that he's seen the oppression of his people in Egypt and that he's heard their groaning. God came down on that day. He came down to intervene for his people and he charged Moses to deliver them out of Egypt. This Moses whom they rejected. Chapter 7, verse 35. This Moses whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? Is the one God sent to be a ruler and a deliverer. By the way, the word deliverer there? Redeemer. By the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush... He brought them out after he had shown wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and in the Red Sea and in the wilderness 40 years. This is that Moses. Stephen testifies that God sent Moses to be the ruler, to be the redeemer of his people out of the hands of Pharaoh. Right from there, I want you to notice where Stephen goes next. Look, if we look at it's Deuteronomy, it's a quote from Deuteronomy 18, 18 and 19, which says, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brethren. And will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak all that I command him. And it shall be that whoever will not hear my words, which he speaks in my name, I will require it of him. Speaking of that prophet to come. The prophet, Jesus Christ. Being pointed to back in Deuteronomy. The prophet to come. I will raise up for them a prophet like you. Like who? Like Moses. From among the people. And still speaking of Moses, Stephen points his words in Deuteronomy 18 where Moses recounts to the people the words of the Lord. He says there's coming another prophet and God's words are going to be put in his mouth and he's going to speak all that the Lord commands. And we know from reading the Gospels that Jesus was all about carrying out and doing the will of his Father. This is he, and this is the third time that he uses this demonstrative. This one This Moses, this one. In similar fashion, Peter in his day of Pentecost uses that same, this Jesus, whom you crucified, whom God has raised up, right? Some of the wording is similar here, but he's pointing this Moses and he's he's beginning to narrow his, his focus here. Third time he's used this demonstrative reference to Moses. He's building. The Lord, I believe, is sharpening and narrowing his defense, his testimony. And he's granting Stephen a mouth and wisdom, providing historical evidence of what the nation of Israel has done for quite some time now. They've rejected God and God's deliverers. 
This is the Moses who was in the wilderness with the assembly. This is the Moses who heard from God at Mount Sinai. This is the Moses who received the living oracles to give to us. Moses is the lawgiver. The one who gave the law to the people. He received it from God, but he was the one who gave it to the people. Whom our fathers, the text says, would not obey, but rejected. And in their hearts they turned back to Egypt. You see, in verses 40 to 43, Stephen then, he he makes mention of the golden calf incident. You remember that? Exodus 32, for reference in your text. By the way, I encourage you. One of the things I did this week was uh, I began a, a list of just two columns. This may be a helpful exercise. But one column in the Acts text and another column the reference to where it's at in history. What he's speaking, you can look it up. It's all in the scripture. He's not, he's not blowing smoke here. He's speaking truth. He's pointing here in 40 to 43 to Israel's idolatry. You see, Israel rejected their God-sent deliverer and in essence rejected God. Plunged themselves into idolatry thanks to Aaron And in their hearts desired to go back to Egypt. God had sent a deliverer to rescue them out of Egypt. And in their hearts they wanted to go back to Egypt. Think about that for just a moment. It reminded me of what God has done for each one of us who are in Christ. See, God has saved you through Christ, his son. He's redeemed you. And yet how often are you found grumbling? How often are you found desiring to go back to Egypt? How often are you desiring the ways of the old man? If you are in Christ, you are a new creation. And a new creation walks by faith, delights in fellowship with God and with his people and desires to walk in holiness. Stephen is speaking the truth of Israel's history. A history, by the way, that the council would have known all too well. A history that, at this very moment, is pressing in upon their own souls. (laughs) Stephen now speaks in 44 through 47 of God's dwelling place. Remember the fourth charge against Stephen is the temple, God's dwelling place. God appointed Moses. This is interesting. God appointed Moses. Gave him the very pattern, the text says. Gave him the pattern for making the tabernacle. This tabernacle was around through Joshua's time, the period of conquest, all the way through David's reign. And we see in Acts 7, 47, it says that Solomon, but Solomon built him a house. And I believe... Lest the council get confused on where perhaps Stephen is going here. In verse 48, Stephen puts up a very definitive statement rooted in Isaiah the prophet. Some of you here today may have Isaiah 66, 1 and 2. These words probably will sound familiar. That's who Stephen is quoting right here. He says, The Most High does not dwell in temples made with hands. Heaven is my throne, the 
prophet says. And earth is my footstool. What house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Has my hand not made all these things? Solomon himself, if you look at the scriptures in in Kings chapter 8, verse 27, in his prayer to God, you might remember this, his prayer to God when the temple was built, he recognized that God is not confined by any house. Solomon recognized this. He says, but will God indeed dwell on earth? This is verse 27 of Kings 8. Behold, heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain you. How much less this temple which I've built. Solomon got that. And there were some things Solomon didn't get. But Solomon got that. You see, if if the council had not picked up on all the historical hints packaged in Stephen's testimony, if they somehow had missed where Stephen was going up to this point, I tend to believe they didn't miss it, but we'll give them the benefit of the doubt. Let's say they did. The next three verses in the text, in the form of a rebuke, they they bring the situation right before their eyes. The, the, The proverbial ball is now right in their court. In their lap. You stiff-necked. And by the way, as Stephen speaks these words in verses 51 through 53, in the the rebuke, he's using the very terminology that's used in Old Testament history. Because stiff-necked is referred to on a few different occasions in the Old Testament. Stiff-necked is, is a word that, that has in mind rebellious. It has in, has in mind disobedient. It, it, it has its root in, in agriculture and farming and where, where oxen turn from the yoke being placed upon them. You stiff-necked. And what else? Uncircumcised in heart and ears. Ouch. The first one hurt. The second one hurt too uncircumcised. You see, that was, we, we talked about it, and he brought it up in the, in the midst of Abraham, the, the circumcision, the covenant of circumcision. And he's saying, you uncircumcised in heart and ears. You see, Jesus was pointing to circumcision of the heart, wasn't he? And Stephen is defending, remember he's standing over here on the side of Jesus, presenting the truth of Jesus Christ. You always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Can we just pause for just a moment on that one? Let's, let's make this personal for just a, just a second. As your fathers did, so do you. Some of you have fathers. I'm talking to young people right now. You have fathers that love you, have great concern and care for you. And you're able to see a pattern and an example to walk in that way as he leads by this word. Some of you may not have that example. I want to encourage you, young people. And those of us who are older, we can think of our own fathers. And we can think of fathers that we had who didn't lead us in this way. 
The question becomes, are you going to do what your father did if, if your father was walking in idolatry, if your father was walking in disobedience, if your father was walking in rebellion to the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you going to continue to do so? Or are you going to make a stand like this young man, Stephen, and walk in the way, even if it means losing my life? You always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers Notice, notice now he's saying, the second person is coming forth here. You, you, you. Early on he said, our fathers. Now he's pointing, your fathers. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one, the righteous one. Who would that be, church? Jesus Christ. Notice his name hasn't been brought up here. Until now. But even then, in using the just one, the righteous one, he he doesn't actually say Jesus. Of whom you now have become the betrayers and murderers. Who have received the law by the direction of angels and have not kept it. This God that you are saying that I'm blaspheming. This Moses that you're saying, I'm blaspheming. This law that you're saying, I'm blaspheming. This temple that you're saying, I'm blaspheming against. Will you look into the mirror? Will you look into the history, the vast history of this nation of Israel? Will you look and see for just a moment that you counsel have rejected these very things? Well, there's the verdict. I put that in quotes. Verdict. Wasn't really a trial in many ways. We see that truth leads to martyrdom, right? Truth leads to martyrdom here in the text. The truth leads to a death sentence. Acts 1 verse 8. You shall be witnesses to me. In Jerusalem, with the power given to him in the Holy Spirit. Stephen stands courageously in the midst of the council and is ready to be a witness in the true sense of the word. He's ready to give his life for the one he believes in. He's ready to stand strong on the truth of Jesus Christ for whose sake he's willing to lose all things even his own life. After hearing the rebukes from Stephen, those in the council were literally, the word there, furious. Furious. What were they furious about? You know, right here I'm reminded of the man who was born blind. Remember John's Gospel, chapter 9? Remember that story? Wonderful passage. Remember when that young man was confronted by the council? They wanted to know, how did this happen? And the man gave testimony. What Jesus did, opened his eyes. And they go to his parents, and what, what happened here? Tell us what happened. Well, he's old enough, he'll answer for himself. The parents were a little fearful, and so they go back to the young man, and they ask him again for answers. How'd your eyes get opened up? 
And essentially the man rebukes them for their unbelief. And do you remember how they responded to that? They essentially kicked him out of the synagogue. How dare you lecture us? See, that same spirit is present right here. Same spirit. It's present right here. As Stephen, a Greek-speaking Jew. Remember, he was one of the seven chosen to take care of the problem. And they chose seven who were going to help facilitate that Hellenist situation. He rebukes the religious leaders for their hard-heartedness toward God. And you know, I'm reminded of the proverb right here, Proverbs 29, verse 1, which says, He who is often rebuked and hardens his neck will suddenly be destroyed, and that without remedy. Stephen, in the text, catches a vision of the glory of God and sees Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And after hearing these words, the council explodes into this frenzy, raising their own voices to drown out the words of Stephen, plugging their ears, sort of maybe, uh, uh, for some of us we might get a, a humorous picture of that, where they're, they're just trying to yell louder than Stephen so they don't have to hear what he has to say, and they're running around with their, their, their fingers in their ears so they don't have to hear him. But church, let's understand this is far from being funny. They ran at him with one accord. Isn't it interesting that the thing that they're of one accord about is is killing another one of God's messengers. It's amazing. Even in the church today. Let's bring it forward. How many other things are we of one accord about? other than the very things, according to the scripture, were to be in one accord about. With one accord, they rush at him. Cast him out of the city, and they stone him. Look at verse 58. The witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. I praise the Lord that Luke inserts this here. He's giving us a little picture, a little window an introduction, if you will, into the life of Saul, this man who will, in a few chapters down the road, be called Paul, the Apostle Paul. He was there that day. Verse 59 says, They stoned Stephen as he was calling on God. He's calling on God. He said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Those words may sound familiar from the life of Jesus himself while on the cross. And he knelt down and he cried out with a loud voice. Lord. Do not charge them with this sin. Reminds me of what Jesus said. Father forgive them for they know not what they do. And when he had said this he fell asleep. See the the verdict expressed by the council was guilty. But the council was continuing a pattern. A pattern that the nation of Israel had walked in for a long, long time, as recounted by Stephen in his testimony. The pattern continues at the end of Acts 7. They killed another one of God's messengers. 
And yet the passage doesn't end with gloom and despair. Some have wondered. Some have wondered. If you read and do some study on this, you, you come to see that some have wondered about the testimony of Stephen, whether or not it fits into the scope of Luke's objectives in the book of Acts. It's the longest speech, as I mentioned earlier, in the book of Acts. And I believe it fits. I believe it does fit. It fits perfectly with God's plan to extend the gospel to the nations. You see, Stephen's account here in the text is much more than in some trivial fact. You know, this is usually one of the questions. Stephen's life is usually one of those trivial uh, questions. You know, the first martyr. Who's the first martyr in Scripture? Stephen, right? We, we kind of know that answer. That's not why it's here. That you just might be able to recite some fact. He, he, he is the first recorded here in the, in the scripture, the, the first to die for his faith in Christ that we have at least here recorded for us. And I believe Stephen's testimony, it fueled the fire of the gospel, which at the time, contextually, is already moving. It was growing in the midst of persecution. Now it's growing in the midst of martyrdom. And yes, that seems to be God's way. This account may end, sadly, from a human perspective. Acts chapter 7, that is. But as God looks on, he's pleased. Some have said that even in his own standing, he's pleased with Stephen and his faithfulness. He's pleased. Even to the point of death... You know that we might be able to see and remember and carry with us this faithfulness of Stephen? See, because of his desire to be faithful to his Lord. Luke provides us, I believe, some clues about Stephen's impact. The impact of Stephen's life. First of all, his preaching and his teaching was grounded on the truth of God's word. He was not swayed by men. He was full of faith. He was full of wisdom. Full of the spirit. Full of power. His life was lived out in the power of the Holy Spirit. His life was lived by faith in Jesus. There was no question, as you read about this man, Stephen, there's no question which side he's on. There's no question of him straddling. He is firmly grounded, rooted, right over here in the truth of Jesus Christ. I believe that's one of the lessons for us today. We too need to be over here. But what about his death? See, his death served, and we'll see this as we keep going. His death served as a catalyst for the global expansion of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Isn't it like God to take something bad from our perspective and use it for good? How many times does he do that? See, his death also, let's catch this. His death also served as a template for a young man named Saul. And we'll talk more about this down the road. Who would be the one that God calls to suffer for his name. The one who was going to take the baton essentially from Stephen. And he's going to carry the gospel to the end of the earth. That's the impact of Stephen. What about you? What is your response to this man, Stephen? What is your response to this text? 
The Lord placed this text in here for a reason. It's intended to be profitable for your soul. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be witnesses to me. You see, Stephen was chosen as one of the seven to take care of a food distribution problem among the Hellenist widows. And yet God takes this one man full of faith, full of power, full of the Spirit and gives him a mouth and wisdom to speak the truth and stand for Jesus Christ. A witness unto death. Who will stand? Who will go? Who will walk by faith? Who will walk in obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ? Who will be a witness today? That's the the question. God is still seeking such witnesses to be carriers of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The response, I pray, would be a response similar to that of Isaiah. Hear my Lord, send me. Church, have you seen your own life? As occasion for testimony. I pray that you'd see it that way. Let's pray. Father, we look forward to the day when we'll behold you and we'll see you be in your presence. Absent from the body, present with the Lord. This life that you've given to us is but a mist. We're here for a while and we're gone. You have said in your word that we're here for a purpose, for a reason. Big picture to give you glory, but specific purpose and mission. To be a witness to Jesus to bear testimony to the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ, to point others in the direction of Jesus and to stand upon the truth of Jesus Christ. Oh, Father, I pray this church body would not waver, would not try and straddle, would not try and side with those we spoke of earlier today, but instead we would be people of faith. Faith grounded and rooted Assured in the promises, the word that you've given to us in the scripture. Oh, Father, may we walk by faith. May we walk as your children, obedient children, not as rebellious and stiff-necked. But, Lord, what you have to say, may we align ourselves to what you have to say. May we walk in your way. And may our lives, and maybe, Lord, even as we see today in the life of Stephen, even our death, even in our death, may our lives and our death give testimony to the work of God in our lives through Jesus Christ. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.